Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On this week's show, there will be absolutely no misrepresentation of the MP Chris Grayling. I wholeheartedly promise. But I may have been crossing my fingers as I said that. Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm not Tiernan Duyeb. Ha! <laughs> Joke. I totally, totally am, because absolutely no one else would host this. There is no money in it at all. Sorry, this week's show is a teeny bit late. Uh, it is due to an interview arrangement error, uh, which is also known as Tiernan is bad at admin phenomenon, or badmin, as I like to call it, because I am slick as... Uh, But I did ask on a Twitter poll if any of you would prefer the show to be released on time but with no interview or released late but with an interview and several of you balked at the idea of just me talking for 45 minutes so here we are all a bit late. Um, And I say several, but there were about 19 votes at the last count. There's at least a thousand of you that listen to this podcast every week now, which is exciting. So that is a 1.9% turnout. Let's hope we never need to have partly political industrial action or it is a total no-go on those figures. So yes, here we are, uh, better late than never, which applies to everything except nuclear war. Oh, and podcasts, I suppose, because uh, really you can listen to this when you like. It's almost magical. Uh, My podcast's Not Nukes t-shirts will be printed at some point in the far future and worn by absolutely no one. Anyway, we've got lots and lots on this week's show, including an interview with QC Joe Morm, who writes the excellent Waiting for Godot blog about corporate tax avoidance. Uh, And I'm going to be looking at just how scary Project Fear really, really is. But first, this week... Headlines! I'm a self-employed 35-year-old whose method of paying off my student loan is just to work on the if I'm not looking at it, it's not there tactic. So the notion of one day getting a pension is pretty much non-existent for me, unless you mean that a pension is a tiny mansion in which I can house my biro, in which case I've made one of those using Lego already, and Little Bic is very comfy indeed. George Osborne has dropped his plans to alter tax relief on pensions, which were only proposals anyway, and ultimately he's just sort of not doing yet another thing that we weren't sure that he'd do in the first place. This adds to a very long list, including providing definite proof that he's not a giant reptile who feeds on the dreams children have when their pets die. At the moment, people pay pensions on pre-tax pay, so the current tax relief on your pensions means that the more money you earn, the higher your pension will be, as you could gain tax relief of 40-45% to if you're a big old money bag. And one of the options for change, that now definitely isn't happening any time soon thanks to George, was to replace a tiered system of tax relief with a flat rate of say 25p or more, helping those on lower wages to raise more pension funds but penalising those on higher wages. The other option was to remove all upfront tax relief on pension contributions in exchange for an entirely tax-free pension when you retire, which again would mean those currently saving tonnes from their mega salaries would lose quite a lot of dosh. So you can see George's thinking in not doing what he was probably never going to do in the first place. In that if he has to provide any sort of relief to anyone in his life, beyond all that relief he gave people in his boarding school days probably, (laughs) um, it'll be keeping the sort of people who vote Conservative happy. Osborne said that now is not the right time for pension reform, even though there's apparently no time like the present. 
especially if all you've got for the future is a small fire made out of unopened student loan letters. Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader and one-man vintage clothing outlet, has asked for Labour MPs to stop all their backbiting and public attacks. Or maybe he was visiting a dog's home. I don't know. Though, to be fair, I suppose dogs are pack animals and they actually do less feral scrapping than the Labour PLP. So he probably was just addressing Labour's MPs. Since Jez's election as leader, the self-destructive infighting in the Labour Party has been so vicious that there are probably groups in Syria signing petitions to make it stop. Corbyn said in a Labour meeting at the House of Commons that while there are disagreements, they can debate these issues respectfully in here and in the party, and that the sniping has to stop. Although I suppose, considering his views about weapons, I'd presume Jeremy would still be happy for the snipers doing the sniping to have the guns, but without any bullets in. Anyway, various MPs have done exactly as Corbyn asked, by going straight to the press and describing the meeting as bleak and hostile, and one said it was an orchestrated operation of the friendlies which I don't think sounds like that bad of an operation. I mean, at least it was orchestrated, so they'd planned it. And to be fair, they sound quite nice. Tristram Hunt said that the former Labour leader, Harold Wilson, would be slightly horrified to see the party under Jeremy Corbyn. Though, I presume, after he'd been dead for 21 years, Harold Wilson would probably be slightly horrified by most things, especially his own zombified undead state of being. Hopefully Labour will manage to sort things out before 2020, or perhaps they should just split up into different groups to make themselves happier. I mean, you could have New Labour, Old Labour, Red Labour, Blue Labour. It'd be like a really, really boring Dr Seuss book that doesn't quite rhyme. Still, I guess it's either that, or they'll just have to change it entirely so that the party name of Labour refers to the fact that getting anything done amongst them is bloody hard work. Donald Trump has said that he'd like to take on Ted Cruz one-on-one. Currently, Trump is ahead in the Best Unwanted Howling Baboon Tribute Act competition, but also in the stakes for Republican presidential candidate, with 12 state wins in caucuses and primaries. Though that's still only 384 delegates out of the 1,237 that he needs to win. So, meanwhile, goblin trying to infiltrate humanity, Ted Cruz, has 300 delegates and after a win in Kansas, six states. And the fact is, really, none of this matters because both are extremely terrifying, with a distinct lack of care for facts, some very scary racist views, and huge amounts of self-absorption. Hopefully, though, the one-on-one battle that Trump wants will involve some sort of weapons, especially considering that they're both very keen gun fans, and we can all hope for just a double KO for the sake of the planet. I stayed up last week watching far, far too much of Super Tuesday, which is my least favourite DC film so far, I must say. And there was a moment on Sky News when a man who looked a lot like an extra from Dukes of Hazard said that he'd voted Trump because America needed something different. And I thought, well, it probably does, but Donald Trump as that difference seems like a very odd solution. It's a bit like someone realising that dieting wasn't losing them weight, so they thought they'd try something different and cut off their own head instead. Good luck, America. We're going to be training up even more British astronauts here in the UK, just in case you screw it up. Right, I'm taking this one a little bit personally. In the House of Commons last week, Chris Grayling made it very clear that the government won't be reviewing the 1989 ban on parliamentary footage being used for satirical programmes. Why? Is it because he's so scared that a lot of footage of him will be prefixed by commentators saying how he looks a lot like an alien was given a design brief of how to create a human man, only it contained very little information and excluded all notions of a need for empathy? Rupert Huck, who happens to be the very, very funny Charlie Brooker's sister-in-law, asked that the stupid, stupid ban be reviewed because how can we expect to trust a government who obviously have so little faith in their policies that they won't let them be scrutinised by comedians? I mean, it's ridiculous rules like that that mean that we can't have a UK Daily Show over here or why John Oliver had to go to the US just to do Last Week Tonight. It's hard to mock things that you can't show, so if all parliamentary footage is out of use, and that's where all the governing policies of the country are made, then it leaves us political comedians a little bit stuck. You know, considering comedy is a good tool to help people understand worldly goings-on, it leaves other people stuck too. Unless they listen to this, because last week I accidentally used a clip of David Cameron in the Commons, but no one seems to have noticed. So, anyway, (coughs) Um, Charlie Brooker said on his Twitter that this ban actually makes it easier to misrepresent MPs, as you can't depict the reality of what they said. So, bearing that in mind, this week I've decided that as I can't replay you Chris Grayling's comments from the Commons, I'll act them out for you completely and utterly verbatim. I mean... 
How can you prove it's not real? House of Commons, Thursday 3rd of March 2016. The House met at half past nine o'clock. It's a question from Dr. Rupa Huck, Labour MP, played by Miss L from Casting Call Woe or at Pro Wrestling on Twitter. Chris Grayling, played by Tin and Duyeb. That's me. Rupa Huck. May we have a statement on the uses of broadcast footage of the House of Commons? My constituent, Charlie Brooker, has raised with me... He has, and he was one of my 270-something constituents who contributed to my majority. He has raised with me the problem that he is unable to use such footage in his programme Screenwipe. Yet other not-too-dissimilar broadcasters are allowed to use it. It depends on whether the programme is satire, light entertainment or factual. Given how vague these boundaries are, and the fact that these rules were dreamt up some 27 years ago, does not the right honourable gentleman agree that now is a good juncture to revisit the matter and have a statement on it? If it is a matter of concern to the Honourable Lady, she should make a submission to the Administration Committee. However, I am a massive tool and I'm terrified that if you show recordings of me, people will go, look at that massive tool. He's so rubbish that many of his policies as the previous Justice Minister have now been reversed by Michael Gove, who we also thought was a tool, so that makes Chris Grayling a mega, mega tool. Oh God, even thinking about it has made me wet myself everywhere. I'm so hateful, I should probably live in a well. Yep, that is what he said. Totally verbatim. I haven't got much of a clue about tax. Once a year, I spend slightly too long looking at an Excel spreadsheet typing in how many egg mayonnaise sandwiches I've had from service stations around the UK. And then I send that to my accountant who pretends not to be shocked at how little I earn and a few months later I have to pay a ton of money I don't have to HMRC. I don't think I know anyone that actually likes paying tax, especially when it's to a government that you feel are misusing it properly. You know, like when they're spending £5 million on advertising the new minimum wage that isn't even a living wage. I mean, they're essentially rubbing it in your face that the money you don't have enough of is mainly being used to patronise you about that fact on TV, posters and social media. Woohoo! Thanks very much! But the fact is, tax payments in this country fund a lot of very important things, like the NHS and education and transport, well, until they're all privatised, that is. And most of us can't get away with not paying tax unless you're a big corporation who know exactly how to legally not pay much of it at all. Out of interest, if you are a big corporation, how do you listen to this? And if it is just one download or subscription to cover everyone in your company, then at least give me a review on iTunes, yeah? Hmm? Tax avoidance is a tricky subject, as some say it is a necessary allowance to attract more businesses to invest and work in the UK. While others say, uh, as I probably would, that they should contribute accordingly to the country that they're earning money in. With recent stories about Google's tax avoidance, while Facebook announces it will pay even more tax in the UK, the whole subject of it seems like a prevalent issue. So this week I spoke to Jolly Unmourne, who is a Queen's Counsel and leading legal practitioner in litigating tax cases. He writes an excellent blog called Waiting for Godot, where he regularly posts his thoughts on tax-based news stories. So I thought I'd ask him some very taxing questions. (laughs) Taxing. Get it? Yeah, sorry. So, Joe, the UK tax gap from 2014 to 15 was £34 billion. And £16 billion of that was caused by tax avoidance. So do we have a tax avoidance problem in the UK? Um, I've got the tax gap figures in front of me. Um, I see £2.7 billion of avoidance. I see £4.9 billion of legal interpretation, which is basically where people have a different view of the law uh, than HMRC, and that leads to a reduction in the amount of tax that HMRC thinks it ought to be collecting. Right. But I don't see a £16 billion figure. There's, there are a lot of other numbers. There's criminal attacks and evasion and the hidden economy. All of those things really are um, criminal rather than um, avoidance, which, um, as you'll hear people and companies say, is 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 legal and, and works. Okay, so um, I'm in, and here's where I should probably say that I did get that from a website and a newspaper, so <laughs> that's probably not the correct <laughs> figure. So you say it's but, 2.7 billion is the... Well, I think the number that 
HMRC gives for avoidance is £2.7 billion. Um, and that's obviously rather a, a modest number in the scheme of things. We collect more than um, £500 billion in tax every year. Um, but it's also a number that's apt to mislead because it excludes um, pro-purpose of avoidance. So if government deliberately introduces um, what on any sensible view is a loophole into the law, deliberately introduces that loophole, um, the tax gap won't class the tax that's lost through that loophole as avoidance. Right. Um, and a very good example of that is the um, government's shares for rights scheme, which is basically just a bung to venture capitalists, has no possible sensible commercial purpose. It is a a sort of legalised loophole. Um, the other really important thing that the £2.7 billion figure doesn't include, and indeed the tax gap itself doesn't include, is um, international avoidance. So it explicitly doesn't include um, base erosion and profits shifting. Um, so base erosion is the bit where um, you are able to reduce the amount of your income uh, on which you would otherwise have to pay tax uh, through legal means. And profit shifting is where you shift your profits from a high-tax jurisdiction um, into a low-tax jurisdiction, typically into a tax haven. Right. Um, so uh, £2.7 billion pounds is the number that HMRC gives, but it's a rather misleading number. Um, do I think we have a problem with avoidance? I think I'd analyse it in two stages. Um, personal avoidance um, was a very real problem, but I think HMRC has rather got on top of it. I don't see there being huge sums of money lost to personal tax avoidance going forward. Okay, because uh, um, you're, with the, you're saying that it doesn't class... Uh, international um avoidance so because has is there still non-dom uh, tax avoidance going on then um well non-dom tax avoidance would fall into the class of category uh that i described as pro-purposive avoidance. Sure. so government would say of um tax that we would collect if we didn't have the remittance basis of tax that uh, non-doms can access uh government would say of that tax, that's not tax that's avoided, it's tax that government has decided it doesn't want to collect. Right. Um, so it wouldn't count any uh, tax that we voluntarily and deliberately choose to forego through rules like the non-DOM rule. It also doesn't catch um, tax that uh, Facebook or Google or Amazon or Starbucks or Uber... Uh, all of these US MNCs, um, would have to pay uh, if we had a system of corporation tax that looked like a logical system. Um, so is that so the area that you were going to say? It's a very misleading number. I, I was just going to say, is that the... So I, I interrupted you earlier, but you're saying that we don't have a problem... Uh, you don't think we have we a problem in terms yeah. of personal, but is that where you were going to say we might have a problem is corporation tax? I think that's right. I think um, with personal tax, um, which accounts for uh, the overwhelming majority of the uh, tax that we collect, there isn't a problem with avoidance. But I think um, there are problems with uh, corporation tax uh, in particular. And I think HMRC um, does, generally speaking, do um, really rather a good job uh, with corporations. Um, but I wish I could feel more confident than I do that HMRC um, is prepared to test difficult arguments with corporations. So... Um, on these really big, crunchy questions, um, 
on the back of which hang very substantial sums of money uh, to be paid by often very, very big companies, you don't really see HMRC um, testing the arguments as much as you might like. Right. And although I don't think HMRC is institutionally inclined to deliver sweetheart deals to big business, um, I, I, I'm still left with a sort of lingering discomfort that 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 I rather wish I didn't feel. Right, okay. I mean, is, is that why um, you think, because my next question I was going to ask you is why uh, the UK have managed to get less tax out of Google than other European countries. And is that, do you think that's due to the HMRC's kind of uh, lack of trying? Well, uh, the first point I think to make is that we don't actually know what tax France or Italy will get from Google. We know that they are asserting a right to um, recover substantial amounts of tax from Facebook or Google. Um, we don't actually know whether um, those assertions will stand up if Google challenges them. What we do know um, is that the French are pretty bullish. So the French finance minister described our settlement with Google as um, he used diplomatese, but essentially what he meant was a sweetheart deal. Right. So their view is very clearly that we are not getting things right. Um, why are they um, punchier? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, I do think it's one of the factors that causes me to feel the discomfort that I feel uh, about whether HMRC is chasing as hard um, as uh, as it might. Well, um, let me come, I'll come back to you on that, because um, I think that's something that quite a lot of people uh, seem to feel, uh, and I'd like to ask you some more questions on that. But, but just to more immediate issues... Um, Talking about Google, we've just had the news story this week that Facebook say that they're going to pay more tax in the UK. Um, is that a good thing? Should we be happy with that news? Because it, it sounds good to me, a member of the public, reading the newspapers. Um, well, it, 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 it may be no coincidence that um, both the Google and the Facebook stories, of course, the Google story uh, turned out to be a bad story for Google, but at the time it was thought to be a good one. Um, came from the same uh, journalist um, who uh, has a reputation um, in the industry for being a very good conduit for business wanting to release stories um, favourable to business to the world at large. Right. Now, I don't know whether that reputation is deserved or not, uh, but I do know that it's um, uh, it's widely uh, held, um, uh, and um, if you look at uh, the Facebook story, what you can see is that Facebook was driven by um, really, I think, two things: uh, the very negative publicity attendant on Google's deal. Um, but also some additional risk to its tax planning in consequence of the diverted profits tax. So you're, you're weighing those two things on one side of the scale, and then on the other side of the scale, you're um, asking yourself, um, well, if we adopt slightly less aggressive tax planning, what's the additional tax cost to us going to be? Now, um, what makes me really rather suspicious about all of this is that um, Facebook haven't actually given us any transparency as to what this proposed new uh, measure of calculating their tax liability is actually going to mean in number terms. Right. And we won't actually know anything about what it means in number terms until, I think, 2020. And if it was a good story on number terms, um, you would think that Facebook would give us um, a bit more detail than they have. Yes, of They've course. They've made a positive decision not to tell us um, anything about what it means in number terms, and that causes me and will probably cause most um, sentient people 
to feel a degree of scepticism about whether um, this is really going to be meaningful in tax terms or is, on the other hand, just um, uh, a little bit of extra money um, for quite a lot of good publicity. Sure, sure. It's because uh, it's something that I've noticed. I, I used uh, Facebook horrendous amounts uh, for comedy purposes, um, and it's it's always felt quite weird that you are. I'm paying for services in the UK, but I get invoiced from Ireland. Um, why is it that tax law doesn't seem to follow the sort of substance over form idea? You know, why why are they paying <coughs> Irish tax rates for services that have happened in the UK? <laughs> well. Um... You need to distinguish, I think, between two situations uh, at sort of different ends of the spectrum. Let's assume that you're wanting to buy some music, and you're wanting to buy some music um, from a a U.S. artist, a small artist who you heard playing on the street in in New York, uh, and he's got his own website, and you can cough up um, uh, 10 bucks and uh, buy a digital download of his latest um, album. Um, In that situation, you wouldn't expect him to have any liability to UK tax. Mm. Um, He hasn't done anything in the UK. Everything that he's done, he's done in um, the US. Um, On the other hand, um, if you're going to buy the new... Kanye record and you're um, old and you still want to have it on a CD, you still want the physical form, and you go and you buy it at HMV, um, you would very much expect HMV to pay profits, um, sorry, to pay tax on uh, the profits that it makes from buying and uh, selling from wholesales and to customers um, of CDs. Um, And uh, what the tax system does is looks to whether somebody has a physical presence in the UK, um, a necessary uh, level of presence, somewhere between those two extremes, in order to work out whether they have a liability to um, pay corporation tax in the UK. And if you look at those two polar extremes, you can sort of see that it makes sense. Um, The difficulty is... I was going to say, do you think that this has all then become more complicated because of online sales? Well, it is online sales. It is the digital economy um, that is uh, really throwing up profound challenges to a tax system that was created and designed um, in and for a world uh, that did not know um, uh, digital technology. It was before the internet existed. So... um, uh, of course, um, it is struggling to cope with how people can and do choose to do business today. So that would make a good case for reforming it to make it apply to the modern world? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there is no real room for doubt, um, but, but that the system of taxing um, the profits of businesses is completely broken. So, I mean, I've heard lots of people say that UK tax law is overcomplicated uh, and isn't made uh, to be easy to understand. Is that uh, just another example of that? I don't think so. Um, There's a trade-off between complexity uh, and uh, uh, certainty. So... If you're a business, it's quite important when you transact that you know what the tax consequences of transacting are. Um, and if you have a sort of broad principle, principles-based system, um, you can't really deliver to business that certainty. Um, so you need um, complexity in order to address all of the very many different ways in which businesses um, transact uh, in order to deliver precisely the commercial result that they want. So um, we do have a very complex tax system. Does it need to be quite as complex as it is? Um, I think almost certainly not. Um, Do I think that complexity, that, that it's complexity that is the cause of tax avoidance? 
I, I don't. I think complexity is very often a response to tax avoidance right. um, rather than a cause of it. Uh, yeah, because I presume if it was easier, people would find probably loopholes easier, <laughs> easier to fight. Well, the way in which it works is that business identifies um, a loophole uh, and then government introduces uh, a very extensive patch um, over that loophole and then business finds a little um, gap in the side of the patch and government responds by introducing yet another patch over the top of that gap. And so you have um, a sort of series of um, patches introduced um, over time to deal with loopholes that um, uh, tax advisors uh, have found. And it's that process of constantly patching up where we are that has given rise to the 22,298 pages of tax law that we presently have. My goodness, that is a lot of patches. That's <laughs> Two-thirds the length of the Encyclopaedia Britannica That's in incredible. its last print edition. Have you, have you read it all? <laughs> um, I, 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 um, I like to say that I know an awful lot about very little. Um, I know tiny, discrete parts of the tax code very, very well. Um, the tax code as a whole, uh, I couldn't say that I was especially expert in. Right, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I mean, that's, that's quite a, a, a good couple of months of reading there, at least, I think, isn't it? Well, and it's well, also an exercise in sort of painting the fourth bridge, um, uh, because every year you get another sort of three or four hundred pages of tax law, um, changing everything that um, you already thought uh, you understood. And so you can never really get on top of the legislative code. All you can hope to do is have some idea about um, what it intends to do in prescribed situations uh, and where you can find um, how it is that it actually does the thing that it intends to do. We'll have more from Joe in a minute, but first... Here is another excerpt of the House of Commons, Thursday 3rd of March 2016... The House met at half past nine o'clock. Question from Tristram Hunt, Labour MP, played by Miss L. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And Chris Grayling, MP, played by myself. Tristram Hunt. What recent assessment has he made of the effectiveness of the introduction of procedures on English votes for English laws? We have fulfilled our manifesto commitment to introduce English votes for English laws, which I believe will strengthen the union. We have undertaken two legislative grand committees and, oh God, this is also bloody boring. I'd much rather be punching some kittens or kicking a child in the face. What I really want is English votes for people I like and then to put everyone else in a sack and drown them in the Thames while I drink champagne and watch. And I'd make you watch, Tristram, while I sat naked on your shoulders singing the national anthem and you'd bloody love it. 
If I had it my way, I'd run around naked everywhere, you know, wearing just a yoghurt pot as a hat. But apparently I can't because of bloody left-wingers, so instead I can only do it in one of my four lovely London homes that idiots in the public pay for. Ha 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 ha! Yeah, that is actually how he sounds. I know. What's up with the EU this week, I hear you say? Well, I say, what's up with EU? With or without EU With or without EU The battle between the Brexiters and the Bromanians has got like that of a film script. Though by that, I mean sort of more say something Adam Sandler has done than an Oscar winner. You know, the sort of film where you hate all the characters equally and the script is really, really bad and often doesn't make a lot of sense and you don't care about it. This week there's been a resignation from John Longworth, who's head of the British Chambers of Commerce, or he was the head of the British Chambers of Commerce, and then he was suspended for publicly backing a Brexit. Lots of Brexiters backed him, obviously, and those who wanted to stay in the EU condemned him for taking sides, obviously. All in all, the British Chambers of Commerce represents 52 Chambers of Commerce in the UK and so has to remain neutral to represent all of those. So really, Longworth wasn't suspended because of which side he took, he was suspended because he took a side at all. Considering how much he must know about commerce, he gave the worst advertisement for his professionalism possible. Though it could just be, I suppose, that he knew this and wanted to resign as a sort of tryout exit from a large trading body before he voted for another more important one. The former head of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, has said that he hasn't ruled out voting for a Brexit. But he's also said that he hasn't ruled out voting to stay, so that's really helpful. Thanks, Mervyn. He did also say that the Eurozone is doomed to fail, which makes me think that he'd be a terrible teacher. I mean, how is the Eurozone going to even muster up the courage to try and do well with feedback like that? Come on, Mervyn. If we can thank it for nothing else, the EU referendum should at least be hailed for giving us some of the worst metaphors possible. Pretty Patel said that a vote to leave is not a leap in the dark, it's a leap from a ship heading, like the Titanic, towards a huge iceberg. So, that's still bad then, right? I mean, either stay on the boat and die, or jump into icy waters and die. I mean, if anything, leaping in the dark sounds a bit nicer, because then at least it'll be a bit of a surprise whatever you land on. I mean, if anything, this mess of a message proves that a metaphor from Pretty Patel isn't so much an ill-thought-through idea as it is the political version of Fox's 2015 Fantastic Four reboot that no one understood why it happened. Following that, Boris Johnson, during an interview on The Mar Show, said that the EU is a jail with the door left open, which would, of course, mean that it wasn't really a jail. And if anything, it just sort of shows that Boris is a bit like a metaphor that doesn't actually seem to mean anything. But the most exciting development of the past week was Project Fear, a term that was coined by pro-independence campaigners during the Scottish independence referendum and has now lurched its way back for the EU referendum. If anything, they should really go for full horror film effect and this time call it Project Fear 2, the bitching is back. Ian Duncan Smith is one of the main whingers using this term, which is quite strange as he's the sort of man who you'd assume would use Project Fear as a holding name for any of his policies in the Department of Work and Pensions. Now, as you'll know, I think that there's a lot of nonsense on both sides of the campaign, but it really does take some gall for a man like Ian Duncan Smith to accuse the Remain campaign of desperate and unsubstantiated claims. I mean, this is a man who's been told by the UK Statistics Authority several times that his facts and figures aren't supported by official statistics. And this is a man who once denied that his benefit cap would increase child poverty while he sat in front of a graph that showed that it definitely, definitely would increase child poverty. Ian Duncan Smith now says that staying in the EU increases our risks of a Paris-style terror attack, which, funnily enough, is based on no facts at all. Project Fear. The main complaints from the Leave campaign were based around a government analysis that said that our economy would be worse if we left the EU. Ian Duncan Smith called it a dodgy dossier because it compares the deal that we might get to that of Norway's and Switzerland's, which requires them to make hefty financial contributions to the EU in order to trade with it. Duncan Smith's complaint was that if we left, then we wouldn't have to get a negotiation like other countries because we'd just get our own one because in his head and imagination, we can do what we like because he's not basing it on anything he's ever read ever. Ultimately, though, it's all still incredibly boring, and even though Project Fear sounds exciting, it's far less a good new horror flick and far more a farcical horror parody, probably starring the Wayan Brothers. And that, Boris and Pretty, is how you do a metaphor, you dicks. 
And now back to Joe Moreham and his tax knowledge. Less a case of even being overcomplicated, perhaps just too too full. There's too much stuff. It could probably be summarised or... Um, well, you yeah. can... <clears throat> I mean, as a lawyer, um, when I am confronted with a question of law outside my field, um, like everyone else, I, I Google it. And typically these days, one of the first things that pops up is a little... Um, uh, .gov.uk description uh, of what the relevant legal principles are and I read them and I don't find that they answer my question. They are too broad, too general right. for me to understand exactly what it is that I ca- can or can't do. Um, and fundamentally that is the problem um, with having a short principles-based system of taxation. Um we can't uh, answer with any degree of certainty the questions that we need to answer in order to invest or transact in the ways in which we would choose. So one of the, one of the problems I've had, uh, and, and this is coming from me, as I said, who I, I don't understand tax well enough at all, but uh, I've been against uh, tax avoidance. It's something that, that I believe is, is morally incorrect. But the argument that I, I often hear is that Companies are set up to benefit their shareholders and tax avoidance is legal. It's not tax evasion. So why should companies have to pay more tax? Um, You know, should they be responsible for their tax payments or really are UK tax laws and this very, very long, complicated legislation uh, to blame? Um, I mean, that is invariably um, one of the responses that you will get when you challenge a company that is engaged in um, highly artificial arrangements to reduce its tax bill, fundamentally what that answer does is deflect a question about the morality of a piece of action with an answer that points to its legality. So if um, you're caught sleeping with your um, secretary... Uh, by your um, partner, Uh, it's no answer to your partner's accusation um, you've behaved appallingly for you to say, um, well, it's not unlawful for me to sleep with my secretary. (laughs) So um, it's a a response to a a different question. Looking at it another way, um, you need to start by recognising that... um, corporation tax is, is broken and uh, to fix it requires international cooperation between countries and um, that international cooperation is not forthcoming. I mean, there are a number of reasons why you might, uh, a number of different things to which you might ascribe the fact that we can't fix it. Um, some governments you might feel are in hoc to lobbyists. Other governments believe for genuine ideological reasons that um, it's a good idea for business to pay less tax. Um, Some further uh, countries have worked out that by uh, offering a tiny, tiny tax um, liability, uh, they can essentially generate huge revenues um, by uh, effectively a kind of parasitism, taking tax revenues from other countries um, and charging a, a small amount of tax on those huge revenues. So, so you've got this world in which um, uh, the tax system is broken. Um, it's very, very difficult for uh, governments to cooperate to fix it. And it's very, very difficult for any government to go at fixing it alone. Not impossible, but very, very difficult and rather risky. So that's the world that you're looking at. Um, And then the question that you have to ask yourself is, in that world, do businesses kind of have free reign as to how they respond to that world? Can they take advantage of um, this inability of governments to cooperate, to pay as little tax as possible? Um, And... uh, Uh, many people feel there is a moral dimension to this kind of behaviour, that um, businesses that benefit from roads and from 
broadband and from an educated workforce that is healthy, that benefit from a court system, that benefit from um, policing, um, ought to make a contribution um, to the costs <clears throat> to the state of delivering all of those things, and that it is morally unacceptable, notwithstanding that it is legal, for those businesses um, to uh, take advantage of the flawed world that they find themselves living in. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody will have their own view about what the answer is to that question. Um, the really interesting thing, I think, is um, how we as individuals respond to that world. Um, businesses have a choice, but it seems to me that um, people who uh, do believe there is a moral dimension to businesses um, taking advantage of the flawed world in which they find themselves can respond by um, raising the costs of business engaging in that sort of behaviour. So um, if you uh, raise the temperature under that kind of behaviour, then with that tax-minimising behaviour comes a cost. Uh, if you think that your brand is going to be damaged, um, will people be less likely to buy from you? You might win on the tax swings, um, but lose on the commercial roundabouts. Sure, that's um, sort of what happened to Starbucks uh, a little while ago, wasn't it? I think that's absolutely right. Um, and another thing you can do is you can raise the pressure on politicians uh, to regard this as being a really important voting issue. And once politicians start making noises about this being unacceptable, um, because they are driven to by reasons of political necessity, investors in those businesses start to ask themselves, well, maybe government is going to act. Maybe these um, tax advantages that deliver better returns to us, in, us investors aren't sustainable in the long term. And um, perhaps we ought to uh, be prepared to pay a little less for those streams of profits than we presently do. And once you see um, investors downgrading their expectations of the sustainability of um, these profit streams born of tax planning in the long term, you really are um, making valuable ground. You really are causing businesses to think seriously about whether their hard-nosed commercial purposes are served by engaging in this kind of abusive tax planning. I suppose uh, my concern with all of that is that at the moment we, uh, and, and there was a story out last week uh, or the week before about uh, George Osborne's family, the Chancellor of Exchequer, his family business hasn't paid corporation tax in seven years. And so if the people in the government that have the ability to kind of clamp down on those uh, on, on tax avoidance have that sort of ideology that it's okay, does that mean that we probably won't see any major changes in the law? Um, well, I, I don't think that the story about Osborne and Little is a, a very good story. It is true um, that it hasn't paid corporation tax for a number of years, and it is likely that it will be a number of years more before it pays corporation tax. Um, but uh, we do have a system of law where if you make um, losses in your early years um, or even in your mid or later years as a business, um, you can carry those losses forward and set them against profits that you subsequently make and you can keep setting um, those profits against earlier losses until you've exhausted those losses and only when you do that do you become liable to pay um, tax on those profits? And that's um, actually kind of sensible. It's a sort of substance over form approach to the taxation of profits. Yeah, the whole you haven't really made profits if you're just mm. recovering losses that you incurred earlier. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you do think it's a good idea for us to have a substance over form approach to taxation for some purposes, you might begin to wonder whether it would be a good idea for us to have substance over form um, for the taxation of companies more generally. 
Uh, and at the moment, I think there's a sort of asymmetry. We have substance over form um, where it suits um, those who pay corporation tax. Then we have form over substance um, also where it suits um, uh, those who pay corporation tax. Right. So it just is, it kind of caters for who needs it it's, at the moment rather than what it tails Yeah. Yeah. The EU seem to have quite a lot of measures to counter tax avoidance. Uh, they've recently published a list of 30 countries that they've said are non-cooperative on tax or tax havens. Would leaving the EU mean it would be harder or easier for the UK to tackle tax avoidance? Well, the EU has very limited direct tax competence. It has very limited competence over um, things like income tax and corporation tax. It is competent in areas like VAT um, in what we call indirect taxes. Um, if we were to leave the EU, um, we would have to work out our own indirect tax system. Um, so far as, and, and that might make evasion easier, uh, it might make ev- evasion um more difficult. And I think with VAT in particular, it's mostly an evasion rather than an avoidance problem. Right. Um, as to direct tax, I suspect whether you think that um, leaving the EU would be good or bad um, rather depends on um, what you think the UK government would do, stripped of the limited degree of control that the EU has. Would it um, be more friendly to avoidance? Um, Would it be less friendly to avoidance? Um, I do think it's um, right to observe that the narrative of the Conservative government as being friends of tax avoidance um, doesn't really stand up to examination. Um, I think they've actually done really quite a lot and certainly quite a lot more than previous Labour governments have done. Yeah, that's because um, Gordon Brown uh, had a certain, uh, was it very low tax percentage for corporations? Is that right? Well, um, this, is I'm, this is where I show how little I actually know. <laughs> I have a, I'm quoting the, the, the narrative is one of um, low rates, um, but you have to pay them. And uh, I think there's some, some substance to that, to that narrative. Um, the real um, issue, I think, is that the Conservatives um, culturally are more familiar with um, tax uh, than um, the left is um, because they are fundamentally the party of money and so these issues are sort of discussed around the breakfast table uh, in an educated way in um, ways that they're not discussed um, you know, in the uh, pubs and working men's clubs, um, certainly that used to comprise uh, the conversations of the Labour Party. Sure. I mean, do you think that's part of the, the problem with taxes, that people don't really discuss it or know what's going on? So we hear a headline and assume that is how it must be. I'm not sure there is a problem with tax, actually. I think um, the public is pretty good at sniffing out Um, when there's something naughty going on and uh, the tax community is um, very vocal uh, about what it regards as um, public ignorance and no doubt the tax community is right to say that the public doesn't understand the detail of how the tax system works. But I think the public's got a pretty good nose for um, when the system is fundamentally broken and um, certainly when it comes to corporation tax, uh, I think the public's absolutely right to think the system is broken. Yeah, that is, uh, to be fair, I have seen endless comments at the bottom of newspaper articles saying taxpayers' money is used for this. So you're right. I think people are quite aware <laughs> of where it's going to um, and how it's being used. Um Okay, so uh, very last question. And and now, after speaking to you, I have to say, I've changed my mind slightly on this, maybe. But I used to say in stand-up, or have been saying in stand-up, that my idea to deal with tax avoidance would be that people should be allowed to do as much tax avoidance as they like, people and companies, but then they can't use anything paid for by taxes as a result. So they couldn't use any pavements or street lighting or emergency services or schools. Um, Would that work 
Is it a good idea? Difficult to execute. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I can see there's many flaws in this already. <laughs> £4,327 uh, was um, Facebook's contribution to public finances in the year to the 31st of December 2014. Doesn't buy them much in the way of pavements or roads. Doesn't buy them much in the way of um, policemen stopping protesters going in and um, smashing the place up. Doesn't buy them much in terms of engagement with HMRC. Doesn't buy them much of anything at all, really. Um, so, so it might uh, persuade them to pay I a mean, a nice more. idea. Yeah. <laughs> that captures the, the moral dimension um, to this debate, but quite difficult to execute in practice. Ah, well, well I'll, I'll give it a bit more thought and, uh, <laughs> and propose it to HMRC at a later date then, definitely. Thanks very much to Joe for a very, very fascinating interview. Hasn't he got a lovely, lovely voice? I know. Um, Joe can be found on Twitter at Jollyon Moham, and that's J-O-L-Y-O-N-M-A-U-G-H-A-M. Do check him out on there. And also have a look at his blog, Waiting for Godot, which is at waitingfortax.com and is absolutely fascinating and very clearly explains a lot of the current tax stories. I learned a lot in that interview, and I generally feel like a massive idiot for not knowing much at all about how our tax system works. So hopefully you found that interesting too. Um, And the reason that I've interviewed Joe is actually because several people on Twitter said, give him an interview. He actually understands how the tax world works. So thank you to all those people. And again, if there's any subjects that you'd like me to find someone to ask questions about, or if you know of someone, or perhaps you yourself are an expert in the front line yourself of an area that's affected by recent political issues or is in the news, and you fancy a chat with me, then please, please do get in touch. I'm especially looking for anyone who thinks that they can make sense of the next budget on March the 16th uh, for the following week's show. So if you're that person, then firstly, I'm very sorry, because what a sad thing to know about. Uh, It must be horrible. (laughs) And secondly, uh, please do let me know ASAP at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at parpolebro. Don't bother with Facebook, especially after that chat with Joe that we've just had. Trade unions have been given a pretty bad rap in the last few years. And no, I don't mean someone just bought them Kanye West's latest album. I don't mean that. No More Parties in LA is really, really good. Anyway, under Ed Miliband, the Labour Party brought in reforms to change the way that they worked with trade unions after an investigation into Unite having slightly more to do with the outcome of an election in Falkirk. Then there was the fact that unions voted Ed Miliband in as Labour leader in the first place. Well done, guys. And on top of that... Londoners have been irritated time and time again by endless tube strikes. And the recent junior doctor strikes has led to stupid line beanpipe Jeremy Hunt blaming the British Medical Association for spreading misinformation. Now, the government's trade union bill, if passed, will undermine workers' rights to strike by reversing a prohibition that has been in place for 40 years, allowing employers to call in agency staff to replace them. On top of this, industrial action will only be able to happen if it's backed by 40% of workers eligible to vote, and there are also rules meaning that unions will require a picket officer who will carry around a letter of authorisation that must be presented on request. And it's also patronising that you start to wonder if the next rule will be that there must be two adults to every striker, and when someone blows a whistle they should form an orderly line. Now, some of you may be hearing this thinking, great, hopefully that will mean that there won't be any problems travelling into my low-paid job with not enough holiday, unreasonable hours and unpaid overtime. Thank goodness these unions won't be able to be selfish anymore, sticking up for normal people like me who'd really, really like better working rights. Because... This is the often overlooked fact. I mean, trade unions are, and look, I don't want to shock you, made up of working people. (gasps) I know, right? It's a bit like an M. Night Shyamalan twist or something. Just like normal working people, some are great and some are assholes. Like that guy you work with, you know the one. But generally, they all deserve rights on account of being alive and human beings. I mean, since they were decriminalised in 1867, trade unions in the UK have been fighting to make working conditions better for, well, workers. They offer legal advice and support for their members, and many will represent you at a tribunal if you undergo a disciplinary procedure or suffer from workplace harassment. Which is nice, because I certainly wouldn't do that for you. 
How dare they, right? I mean, if anything, what these unions should be doing is allowing big companies and employers to trample all over them and exploit and abuse their working day, right? I mean, how dare these people want to have a reasonable job? I mean, getting at least 40% of union workers to agree to a strike does sound kind of reasonable, doesn't it? And yeah, I suppose it does. Although, when you take into account that it only requires 6% of Parliament to pass national legislation that could affect those union voters, you start to see that these odds aren't stacked all that equally. Which is funny, because if someone's stacking things, they're probably also on a minimum wage and not part of a union. The number of workers on zero-hour contracts in 2015 was up 19% from 2014. Wage growth is now at a low, and the trade union bill is just going to penalise those, like the BMA supporting the junior doctors, who keep pointing out that they just want to do their jobs properly without keeling over with exhaustion on less pay than they were on before. Labour have been fighting the bill, and Jeremy Corbyn addressed a protest march in Cardiff against the changes, although public sector services in Scotland and Wales may be spared due to devolution anyway. The bill still has to face the Lords, and a leaked letter from Nick Bowles suggested that the Conservatives make a partial retreat. One of the changes requires union workers to opt in to a political fund rather than opt out, which could cost Labour £8 billion of funding a year, all adding to the plans which seem to suggest an unstoppable endless Tory takeover of the kind that may feature in a future Bond film. Although Bond will probably be on their side, judging by how he dresses and the people he seems to hang out with. Even Conservative peers such as Lord Forsyth say that cross-party talks need to happen before this bill goes through. And I bet they will be very, very cross-party talks. It's really funny, isn't it? I mean, when the Conservatives kept saying that they back hard-working people, no one realised that it was off the edge of a very, very high cliff. And here is our last excerpt from the House of Commons, Thursday the 3rd of March, 2016. The question from Louise Hay, Labour MP, played by Miss L, and Chris Grayling, played by myself. (coughs) Louise Hay! This week, a select committee in the Lords found that, contrary to government claims, the trade union bill would profoundly affect Labour Party funding. Previously, the Leader of the House had a letter from the Minister for Skills, the Honourable Member of Grantham and Stamford, Nick Bowles, seeking to make concession on the bill. Will the Leader of the House now agree to the concessions and commit to cross-party talks to reach a fair and long-lasting settlement on party funding? Of course! That is a matter of discussion and debate in the Lords, and the Lords Committee has made recommendations. But basically, no! No, we won't! (laughs) Go fuck yourselves! (laughs) Democracy is for twats! (laughs) You're a twat! (laughs) You're all twats! Yeah, after having heard that, I mean, I can totally see why he wouldn't want that footage being used in a satirical comedy programme. Fair play, Chris. And that's all for this week's show. A couple of very quick thank yous as I have been bugging lots of people for ways to make this show better and how to get more audience for it. And all of these people have been very hugely helpful indeed. So thanks to Jason Spacey, who is at Jason underscore Spacey. That's with an E-Y on Twitter. And he's a very, very funny man indeed. Uh, to Hewell Evans from the Box Set podcast. Listen to that. I'm on last week's one uh, and probably be on this week's one as well. Uh, ben Walker from the Do The Right Thing podcast and Pappy's Flatshare Slamdown, both of which are excellently funny. And Mark from the British Comedy Guide, who produced loads of excellent podcasts, including the two I've just mentioned, but also Izzy Sooty's brilliant new one and the very, very funny Man By Cow. So go and download and listen to all of those and never take your headphones off ever 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 don't listen to the real world it's full of terrible sounds we now have 14 itunes reviews which is really exciting but why not make it more exciting by giving us even more than that i mean bigger numbers are fun right and please do let us know what you like about the show what you don't like about the show any suggestions you have or even why you make that really weird noise when you sleep i mean it is really it's really weird why do you do that let us know. Email us on partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at parpolebro, or on those tax bastards Facebook at facebook.com forward slash parpolebro. Also, if you've been liking the beats behind my words, that is all the doing of my brother Corin, aka The Last Skeptic. He does a lot of the music thing and DJing and producing, but his very latest EP is out on Monday on iTunes and the like, and it's called Your Beat Tape Sucks Volume 1, because he knows all about marketing. 
So go ahead and pre-order that now. It is excellent. It contains a lot of the music that you hear on this show. This week's show was brought to you by Chris Grayling's mum, and Chris himself definitely told us to say that, but it was during a Commons debate, so I can't prove it. Hmm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.